The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Go ahead and open them to Colossians chapter 1. We're in week 2 of Advent, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, which is a season of reflection and a season of anticipation at the coming of the Christ. When you look back on his first advent, Jesus came into the world, incarnated, took on flesh and blood, and moved into the neighborhood, as the message translation of the Bible says. And then we look forward to his second advent, his second coming, when, as we looked at last week in the book of Revelation, Jesus will come and make all things new. And how encouraged we were by that. So uh, as we're walking through this series, what we've chosen to do, uh, I told you this last week, is that uh, there was a theologian who once said that you can look at the Bible this way, that the Old Testament is anticipation of the Christ, that the Gospels are the manifestation of the Christ, that the uh, book of Acts is the proclamation of the Christ, that the letters or the epistles are the explanation of the Christ, and then the book of Revelation is the consummation of the Christ. And so we started last week with Revelation, and we're sort of working our way backwards, which means today we find ourselves in one of the epistles or the letters. Letters were written to local churches by leaders, leaders like Paul or Peter, to both encourage them but also to correct them. There, there were times in which in the early stages of the church, uh, you know, leaders were empowered, and yet they didn't fully have... Uh, understanding or didn't have a full grasp on things. And so letters would be written to sort of course correct and to encourage them. Here at Colossae, which is the city to which this letter was written, about AD 60, so we're talking maybe only 30 years or so after uh, Jesus has come, there were already some false ideas about Jesus that were sort of making their way, creeping, infiltrating into the church. And I think before we get into the text, we need to recognize that a false idea of Jesus is never far away from our hearts or our thoughts. We come up with them ourselves, okay, don't we? And so in Colossae, which was a, a major um, a, a city on a major trade route, okay, they were influenced by all kinds of ideologies, all kinds of spiritual practices, and most people just took those different sort of spiritualities and, and, and religions and whatever and just blended them together as, as it's often the case even today, isn't it? That we just sort of salad bar pick the things that are work for us, that are our preference, and we build our own faith out of that. In fact, there is a, um, there is a website you can go to uh, called the Belief-O-Matic, and you can, you, it's basically a survey, and you type in, uh, here's the things that I believe, and then it spits back out for you, well, here's a religion you should try. <laughs> I think we got it backwards, don't we? Okay. Let's not look for what's true. Let's look for what I believe. And then let me find a, a faith or a religion that, forms, think that it conforms to me rather than let me conform myself to what's true. And so anyway, uh, the idea circulating in Colossae was this, that God is so remote, that God is so transcendent, that God is so other, that the only way for God to have anything to do with messy, kind of broken humanity like us is through a series of intermediary angels. And so there's almost a totem pole of angels, right? And so the higher you get on that pole, the more of God's stuff you have in you. And so they thought that, well, Jesus is really high on that list, right? He's, he's one of the highest of the angels, but he's still a created being. And so therefore he is less than God. That is a false idea of Jesus. 
And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to remind them of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, who Jesus is and why Jesus came. I'm going to pick the uh, chapter up, chapter 1 of Colossians. We're going to start in verse 15. We'll read down to verse 23, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump in here. Now, um, there's a lot of pronouns in this uh, passage. He is, he is, and they're talking about Jesus. So I'm just going to use Jesus' name, if that's okay with you. Can we do that? Okay, doesn't matter. I'm doing it anyway. So <laughs> follow with me, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It'll be on the screen as well if you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. And you, who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Jesus. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, something about that word, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we come before you grateful to gather um, in the presence of your Holy Spirit and under the authority of your holy word. And God, I pray that in our time together this morning that you would make this text come alive in our souls. I don't know where everyone in the room is, is today. I don't know how they're coming in. I don't know whether all of us in the room trust you fully or not, but wherever we find ourselves, however we are coming in, would you by your spirit through your word make this passage come alive in our souls? Would we see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? And would we cling to him? Would Jesus be before all things in our hearts, in our souls, in our lives? So Holy Spirit, help me to rightly divide this text that I might encourage and exhort the people of God that we might um, rejoice in you. I pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. All right, I already gave you my points, so let me hit them again. Who Jesus is. That's the first thing we're going to look at. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. Who Jesus is. Look again at verse 15 with me. I'll just go back to the pronouns. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. These verses are jam-packed 
with meaning and richness and doctrine. So let me just quickly and briefly and simply try to wade our way through them. He starts by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's the same word that we get the, the word icon from. He's the icon of God. In other words, you want to know what God is like? And that's a really great question that all of us should wrestle with. What is God like? If there's a God, what's he like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He doesn't say he's an image of God. He doesn't say he's one of many images of God. He says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, there's a, there's a question that, w- that, we, that the early church wrestled with. Is Jesus the same as God or is he similar? Okay. Um, if I would have had the time, I would have pulled up two baby pictures. One is me and one is my son, Eli. And um, there's the picture of me. It's very cute. And uh, I'm laying on my belly with my little smile, you know. And uh, I'm like, you know, less than a year old or whatever. And there's a picture of Eli in a very similar pose. And you put those two pictures side by side, and it's hard to tell which one's which. And so you might say, well, are we similar or are we the same? Well, if you've seen my son lately, you know we're kind of similar, (laughs) okay? (laughs) He's like 6'5 and like 160 and I'm whatever I am. And so uh, you can tell there's a resemblance, like we're from the same family, but we ain't the same, okay? Is Jesus similar to God or the same as God? He's the same. In fact, the the author of Hebrews would say this. um, Man, I thought I marked my place. Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. Let me just get there and I'll read it for you. He says this. uh, He is, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you want to know what Jesus, you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He says here in Colossians, he's the firstborn of the dead. I mean, excuse me, the firstborn of all creation. Some translations say the firstborn over all creation. Now, uh, in our language today, if we say firstborn, we think born first. But that's not what Paul's trying to convey here. Firstborn is a status. It's a standing. Uh, In the first century, maybe you might remember the story of the prodigal son, and the, the, the father had not died yet, but the younger son wanted part of his inheritance. Well, the firstborn got two-thirds of the entire inheritance. And he had the same rights and privileges and status that the father had. You could say that the firstborn was equal with the father. That's what Paul's getting at. That Jesus, as the firstborn of creation, is equal in standing with the father. He's the firstborn over all creation. We see later here in the text that he created all things. So he can't be created because he's the creator. The firstborn of all creation, carrying the rights and status and power and privilege of the Father. John 1 reminds us that Jesus, um, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. The exact nature and character of God fully and perfectly displayed in the person of Jesus the Christ. Verse 16, again, he goes back to say, by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Paul is getting at this idea of this um, angelic ranking system, right? All created beings, all angelic beings. Jesus is not just one among many. He's over all of them. He is the one who created all of them, and uh, they owe their existence to him, to Jesus. He is the one 
over all of them. In fact, um, if we go back to the book of Luke, for instance, early in the book of Luke, the, the birth narrative of Jesus, what do we see? We see uh, shepherds out in the field, you know, and they're tending, it's like nighttime, and it's quiet and dark, and then boom, all of a sudden there's this light from heaven, right? And there's an angel, he shows up, and what does he say? Do not fear, because they're afraid, you know, there's an angel. And then the sky breaks open, and this entire uh, multitude of angels show up, don't they? And what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men because the Christ has come, right? They are, they are saying Jesus has been born and we praise God that Christ is here. They wouldn't do that if he was just one of them. They are praising God at the incarnation of the Christ, that God has taken on flesh and blood and dwelt among him. Church, Jesus is the name above all names. He is the king above all kings. He is the Lord above all lords. And Hebrews said he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As one theologian put it, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not rightly declare mine. So Paul goes on to say he is before all things. That means he is above everything. And when the reality that Jesus is before all things actually makes its way into your soul, it has dramatic implications. Here's what I mean. Many people, and maybe some of us, relate to Jesus as we want him to be, not as he really is. And we've all done it, and some of us continue to do it. We relate to Jesus as we want him to be, not as he really is. And so we like some of Jesus' teaching in our lives, but we do not want Jesus' authority over our lives. We, we might want Jesus as our Savior, but we do not want him as our Lord and Master. We want Jesus as a supplement to our lives, not as supreme in our lives. And here's the thing. If Jesus is just a teacher or a guru or one of those inspirational like Instagram and TikTok accounts that you follow, then it's true there's a limit on the influence and the domain that we can give him in our lives. If he's just one teacher among many, if he's just one guy that said some good stuff, but he's not really God in the flesh, he's just a spiritual dude, then we can, there's limits we can place on his influence and his impact and his dominion in our lives. But if he is God incarnate, if he is the creator and the sustainer of all things, if in Jesus all things hold together, there is not a single area of our lives that we can hold back from him. You cannot relate to this Jesus and make anything in your life a non-negotiable. You can't say, okay, I see who you are. I give you 95.3%. This other percentage is for me. I don't want your authority. I don't want your dominion. I don't want your influence. This is mine. You can't do that. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Jesus must be before all things, above everything. And we got to wrestle with that, don't we? Have I surrendered all? There's this song we sing from time to time, right? 
I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. A, a partial surrender is not a surrender. Only a full surrender is a surrender. And if he is not Lord of all in our lives, he can't be Lord at all in our lives. You guys with me so far? Okay. So let's look next. So this is, this is who Jesus is, according to Paul, okay? According to the scriptures. Now, he's, he's going to continue that vein a little bit, but now he's going to show us a little bit about why Jesus came. So here's who Jesus is, but why did Jesus come? Look at verse 18 with me. Let me get a sip of water real quick. Got this frog in my throat that's <clears throat> ribbity. Okay. <clears throat> verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. That's weird. He's talking about creation and all that. And then he goes, and the church. You're like, what? He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent just means before all things. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did Jesus come? To reconcile all things to himself. This is what he came to accomplish. But first, Paul says, hey, remember, Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. Uh, which reminds us, right, that the church is not just an organization. It's an organism. It's a living, breathing thing. I hear people sometimes go, well, I just kind of distrust the church because I'm not really into organized religion. And I'm like, number one, not as organized as you think. Number two, it's more than an, organiz than an organization. It's an organism. Okay, there's a lot of ways that the church is referred to in the scriptures, but one of the most predominant ways that the church is referred to is the body. We are the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body. We are members like a human body of one another. We are connected vitally to one another, which means that as the church, as the body of Christ, we are interdependent, right? We are, we are mutually dependent on one another, and then together we are totally dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our head. You separate the head from the body, it's going to die, right? Anything without a head is dead. Anything with two heads is a monster. <laughs> uh, and so he is the head. He, he gives the command and the control and the marching orders and all that, and we execute what Christ has given us to do. I am surprised, but I shouldn't be, by how many churches um, fail to honor Jesus as preeminent, as above all things, as before all things. I mean, it happens even in our own city. We, we look at the scriptures and we go, well, I don't know if Jesus really meant that. I think this was contextual. I think this, right? And we end up making ourselves the authority. We are before all things. We are above all things. And then we reinterpret the scriptures to fit us. Well, here's the problem. You go to the book of Revelation chapter 3, and there's a verse that says that um, Christ speaking says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And a lot of people interpret that to say, well, this is Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. And if you open the door of your heart and let Jesus in, then he'll save you and you'll be a Christian. And the problem with that is that's not what it's talking about. Jesus is knocking on the door of a church who didn't even notice that Christ had left them. Because he was not before all things in their lives. May it never be, church 
after I am long gone from this place, may it never be that this church cannot say Jesus is before all things. He's the firstborn from the dead, which means that Jesus lived and died and lived again, ushering in a new creation. We talked about this last week in the book of Revelation, uh, that, that he, uh, in fact, in, in Revelation 1, he says, behold, I died and I live and I live forevermore. See, when Jesus was resurrected bodily uh, from death, he took on a glorified body, which will never perish again. And so uh, you and I, he was the deposit of that. He's the first fruits of that, the firstborn of that, meaning he's the prototype that will come for all of us. So all of us in Christ will also be resurrected and we will be made like him and have a glorified body that will live forever with our king in eternity. Thank you. <laughs> Praise God. Last week when we looked at Revelation 21, which I heard from so many of you, you were, I mean, I, I, I preached that passage. I'm watching out here, right? And I'm seeing tears streaming down people's faces and, and seeing smiles that like are uncontainable, you know, at, at what is to come. And and Jesus says, I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And I make all things new. And just the encouragement that filled the room when we were hearing those words was so amazing, wasn't it? It was one of those where like, you had to be here, <laughs> you know? In verse 19, he says, and all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, in Jesus. And I love that he uses the word pleased, like it just brought the God had such joy to fill to the fullness Jesus, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. It's not even so much that Jesus is fully God, though he is. It's that the fullness of God is in Jesus. Every, every characteristic, every trait, every attribute of the Godhead is fully present in Jesus Christ. And so he reigns supreme here and now and in the new creation to come. And how is that? How is that possible? Because Christ is reconciling all things to himself. That's what the scripture tells us. Now, what does it mean to reconcile? Let's think about this for a second. Some of you are in like the accounting world, you know, and what does it mean to reconcile the books, right? It means that you've got to take all the transactions and make them match up with all the records of the transactions, right? We bring harmony, we bring cohesion to the books. We're reconciling the books. If you heard, you know, if I just said, hey, Bob and Sue are reconciled, what would you think? First, you'd be like, who are Bob and Sue? <laughs> but, uh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, they're reconciled. What would you think? Oh, that's great, right? They're back together, which means what? It wasn't good. They were separated. They, they were at odds with each other. There was tension. There was space between them. Something had brought a rift between them. But see, now they're reconciled, but they weren't. Paul here is reminding you and me that humanity needs to be reconciled to God. And if you have paid attention at all to this sermon so far, it is not a surprise to you that humanity needs to be reconciled to God. Because if Jesus is God, 
if he is the creator, if he is the sustainer of all things, who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, and if you and I have lived in Jesus' creation and have ever lived by treating him as anything less than who he really is, you can't just shrug that off. You can't just go, well, you know, whatever. The Bible describes this as sin. Like this is the sin of our first parents who looked at God and his gracious authority in their lives and rather than submitting to his gracious authority, they shrugged their shoulders at it and they went, you know what? We'll call the balls and strikes in this game. We'll be our own authority. Stupid, silly example, but this is what my feeble mind can come up with. If you, church member, came into my office and let's say I stepped out of the office for a second and you came in while I was out. And I come in, and you got your feet propped up on my desk. Maybe you got your shoes off, and your stinky feet are all up on my desk, and you're rifling through my papers, and you're eat, drinking my coffee. And, you know, I'm, I would probably be a little peeved at that. <laughs> now, if you go and do that at your boss's office, you might get fired. If you went downtown and went to the mayor's office and did that, you might get arrested. You go all the way to the U.S. president's office, and if by chance you could get through security and get into the Oval Office and you put your feet up on President Biden's desk and you're rifling through his papers and drinking his coffee, you might get shot. <laughs> Why? Okay, same action, right? Same sin, if you will, same action, but the authority level has gone up. And as the authority level increases, so does the consequence and the severity of the punishment. So every time that you and I have done something we shouldn't have or not done something we should have or thought things we shouldn't and acted in ways as though God is not an authority in our lives, every single time we've done that, it is though you have gone into the office of the king of kings and thrown your stinky feet up on his desk and drank his coffee and rifled through his papers. And the Bible says the wages of our sin is death, separation eternally from God. That is the severity of the authority to whom you are trespassing against. Does that make sense? But here is the haunting beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus initiates reconciliation with you. He looks at you with your lack of respect for his authority <laughs> and your foolishness and your pride and your sin, and Jesus initiates reconciliation with you by the blood of his cross. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Okay, so in our, in our last section together, we, we need to answer the question because I think it might be rising to the surface. Okay, um, what difference does that make? I, I see who Jesus is. I see what Jesus has come to accomplish 
why he came, but what difference does it make? Look here at verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to a people who have received with the empty hands of faith the finished work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And he says to them, remember who you were. You were alienated from God. You were hostile. You were doing evil. Some of you were alienated and hostile and doing evil while living your life for yourself, totally oblivious to spirituality and God whatsoever. Some of you were alienated from God and hostile in mind and doing evil while trying to be very, very good and upright and moral and religious. And some of you have been alienated and hostile and doing evil while chasing spiritual experience but rejecting Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things, who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. But then Paul says, but look at who you are now in Christ. You are holy. Hmm. What's that feel like? Because every one of us knows deep down inside how unholy we actually are. But in Christ, we are seen as holy, set apart to God. Another way of thinking about holiness is um, demonstrating, living out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. <laughs> you, what would it be like to believe at the deepest part of your soul that when God says you're holy, he means it? Blameless. Not guilty. There are some of you, you've been walking with Jesus for a long, long, long time, and you still carry around a rucksack worth of guilt about your former life before you knew Jesus. And the Bible says you in Christ are blameless. Put down the sack. <laughs> Lay that guilt down. It is not for you anymore. Above reproach. This means totally accepted. You know what that means? That means the real you. 
when the real you meets the real Jesus, this is what happens. The real you, and by real you, I mean the you that still can't quite get your act together. The, the, the you that continues to kind of go through these cul-de-sacs of negative thoughts and emotions and stupid, foolish patterns of behavior and action. You know what I'm talking about? Okay? The, the you who can't seem to get out of your own way. The you that you can't stand. In Christ, totally accept. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are a hot mess, and so am I. I don't know if you know this, but this 18-inch platform doesn't make me any holier than anybody else in this room. It just highlights my unholiness a whole lot more. We're all a hot mess, folks. But in Christ, you are called holy, blameless, and above reproach. It's a complete identity change. Which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians says, um, therefore now in Christ, you are a new creation. The old, the, 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 the foolish, the stupid, the rebellious, the shameful, the guilt-ridden, has passed away, and the new has come. The new has come. And then he says in 2 Corinthians, all this is from God. And that, friends, is what Advent is all about. God doing for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. Taking on flesh and blood, descending, condescending to the earth, living a life tempted as we are, but without sin or fault or failure because we could not. Going to the cross, taking all of our shame and guilt and foolishness on himself and dying in our place, paying the penalty that we owe in full. And not only that, but then crediting us with his righteousness. Rising again from the dead, conquering our real enemies of death and hell so that we, by the empty hands of faith, could be welcomed into a new kingdom and a new family that will never fade or perish. In other words, God gives his best, his level best, to the most undeserving among us, to those of us who have no justification for who we are. And our only call now, you and I, is to continue in the faith. That's what he says here in these last couple verses. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel. In other words, if you will hold fast to Christ, if you will cling to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, even if right now you are clinging to Jesus, but by like the thinnest little string of faith that you can muster, if you will cling to Jesus and Jesus alone, no matter how thin that strand of faith is, that's enough, you belong. And don't ever let go. Don't ever let go. 
Don't latch on to false ideas about Jesus, which our heart so naturally comes up with and that are so prevalent out there in the world that we can sort of cling to and latch on to. Don't do that. That's why, church, we need to keep our Bibles open so we know who Jesus really is. That's why we need the church. That's why we need to gather together so we can hear his truth proclaimed. That's why we need one another as the church to encourage and exhort and challenge one another and to do all the one another's of the scripture so that we can remain stable and steadfast with our eyes fixed on Jesus. So maybe today there, there's someone who is realizing maybe for the first time that they're not actually in Christ. That, that you've had a false idea about Jesus your whole life. And, and I just, I want to implore you, um, again in the book of 2 Corinthians, this beautiful line. Uh, Paul says this to the, the church in Corinth. He says, um, in, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like today, like now, be reconciled to God. And then he says this, for our sake, he made him Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, so here's the word picture that came, came to me on the nine o'clock. Um, let's say when you're born, you get this like white robe, you know? And like when you're little, it fits you. And as you grow, it just keeps fitting you. Okay, just walk with me on this. But like every time you've taken authority from God into your own hands. Every time you've questioned, you know, well, maybe I can just do this and God doesn't care. Maybe every time that you've sort of done things you shouldn't, not done things you should, had these thoughts, right? It, anytime you've sinned against God, it's, it puts a stain on your little white robe, okay? And so by the time we get to now, like this thing is funky, you know what I'm saying? Like this thing is riddled with stains and muck and all this and it really smells bad. And you're just like, but I like it. So comfy, you know, it just fits me so well. And Jesus comes to you and he looks you in the eye and he says, hey, um, can I have that robe? I got a brand new one to give you. And you're like, I don't, I don't know. He says, listen, I paid a lot. I paid a lot for this robe I'm gonna give you. And it, it'll fit you better than this one does. And so you've, you kind of take it off and you, he gives you this other robe and you put it on and it's sparkling white, right? And here's the beauty of this robe that, he, that you just put on. It can never get dirty, ever. No matter how many times you trip and fall, no matter how many times you like, just end up splayed out on the ground, you get up and that thing is perfectly pristine as if it was the first moment you put it on. Why? Because you are clothed in the righteousness of God. What? And so my, my exhortation to you today is to let go of that funky robe. <laughs> Just lay it down and put on the righteousness of Christ. 
Okay? The Bible calls it repentance, turning away from sin and self and turning to God. Repent and believe that Jesus is the promised Savior. He is the Messiah and surrender fully to his gracious authority and you will never, never, never regret it. With the empty hands of faith, receive the finished work of Jesus in his perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection for you. Like when Jesus went to the cross and died, it was for you. When he rose from the dead, it was for you. And today, you can be forgiven and you can receive this new identity and be called holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Is that not good news? Is that not like the best news ever? <laughs> Let's rest in that beautiful truth that God and sinners are reconciled in Jesus Christ. So I got three questions to put up on the screens for you before we wrap our time together up. You can write these down if you want to. Some of you might want to take a picture of the screen so you can take them with you. Um, many folks take these to community group or Bible study or just out to lunch and have conversations. Maybe they become prayer points for you throughout the week. Um, but here they are. First question, have I been relating to Jesus as he really is or as I think he is or want him to be? Now, again, all of us to some degree relate to Jesus as we want him to be or as we think he is. Some of us have a very negative view of Jesus, that he's some cruel taskmaster. And some of us have uh, the opposite view, that Jesus is some sky fairy who just winks at us in our sin. And neither of those is actually true. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And yet, he is also the one who laid his very life down for you. And so how do I relate to him? Am I relating to him as he really is, as the scriptures reveal him, or am I relating to him some other image of Christ, some other false image of Christ? Second question, what does it look like for Jesus to be before all things in my life? And is there any part of my life that I've held back from full surrender to him? If there's anything that I've said, well, Jesus, you can only come to this threshold, but you can't pass this threshold. This is my stuff then you haven't fully surrendered. So what does it look like for Jesus to be before all things, above every other thing in my life? What is there on earth that is worth holding on to if it means you can't grasp Jesus? It's all or nothing, folks. It's like you jump out of an airplane and Jesus is the parachute and you either embrace it wholeheartedly or you die. That's it. So what does it look like for Jesus to be before all things in my life? Third and finally, how does the truth that in Christ I am called holy and blameless and above reproach change how I step into tomorrow? When I wake up and those thoughts come flooding into my heart and mind, when I get in the shower, when I get out of the car to step into the office? Like, how does the fact that in Christ I'm called holy and blameless and above reproach change how I step into this world? You know? Okay. I'm going to leave these on the screen. I'm going to pray for you. 
And then I'm going to invite you forward uh, to participate in communion. Now, last week we had a little bit of a traffic jam, and this week we got more people than we had here last week. So here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to eeny, meeny, miny, mo. So you first, you second, you third, you last, okay? Here's what we're going to do. Uh, at least on this side, you guys will be dismissed first and come to the table, get your communion, go back. When most of them are done, you guys can get up. Come out to that left side, okay? Come. You guys, we'll split you, and then you guys, this side, stay to the left, okay? Come down. You can break a piece of the bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken for you. Dip into the cup of wine or juice, whatever your conscience allows, remembering the blood of Christ, which was shed for you to, to wash away all your sins. So you make your way back to your seats. There's black boxes in the back for uh, offerings, for um, connect cards. If you're new around here and want to be known, if you have a prayer request, you can take the back side of that connect card, fill it out. Let us know that you were here, how we can pray for you. Drop in those boxes and then make your way to your seats. Hopefully this won't take forever uh, going through the line this way. So you guys first, you second, you third, you fourth. Okay, does that make sense? I'm going to pray for us. Um, if, you, if you're wrestling with the Lord, if you are realizing you haven't expressed faith and you want to follow Jesus, I'm going to be out in that hallway area. I would love to talk with you, pray for you, and pray with you. Um, but we're going to respond to the Lord after we're kind of back seated. Ryan will lead us in some songs. Um, we'll celebrate the gospel through song before we get out of here, okay? Father, I thank you for your kindness to us. It is your kindness uh, that leads us to repentance. And so, uh, Lord, as we consider who we know that we are and yet who you call us, what you call us um, in, in Christ, we just are humbled and grateful or that the, the, the chasm between who we really are and who you say we are is faith, is where faith um, comes in. We believe the identity that you say we have, and we live into it by faith. Um, and so, Lord, as we respond now, as we contemplate the things we've heard and the questions that have been posed, as we um, participate in communion and, and giving and singing, let's pray that your spirit would fill us with joy in your presence, that those of us who need to turn away from some things would would do so in faith, that those who need to embrace some things would do that in faith, um, Lord, and that you would be honored and glorified in our lives and that you would um, just, yeah, that this time would be very meaningful to us. And so um, we give our response to you now and just ask you uh, to meet with us here. We ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.